Tell you what, it's a it's a minor miracle that I'm actually sitting here right now doing the show. <laughs> My alarm didn't go off, and I was up so late. <clears throat> I also got this little bit of a cold thing, but that's that's nothing. The alarm situation was the problem. Um, if I was five minutes later <laughs> with getting up, there's no way I would have been able to do the show on time. So. Um, it's what happens when your phone dies in the middle of the night. I'm usually good at checking the battery, but I guess I just didn't do it. And I had to reduce the bad boy real quick. I got all the way up to a massive 5%. And that's where I'm sitting right now as I talk to you. So I'm a little bit of a mess. Um, I'm not a, I'm not a football guy, as everybody knows, but it's a national tragedy that the Patriots won yesterday. Because uh, I'm I'm like 97% certain that it was divided along partisan lines for which teams you're rooting for. So in other words, every Republican in the country wanted Tom Brady and the Patriots. And every Democrat in the country and left-leaning person in the country wanted the Rams. So I certainly was in that camp. But the Patriots won. Fuck Tom Brady. (laughs) Corin sent me a video. Apparently, he kisses his kids on the lips. The fuck is that shit? <laughs> what are you doing? There's a there's a video of him um, kissing his son on the lips, and like he gives him a little peck and then walks away, and then he says like that's all I get, and then the son walks back and has to like kiss him for like three or four seconds on the lips. It's the weirdest fucking video I've ever seen in my life. I don't know what's going on in it. <laughs> it made me feel very uncomfortable. I was like, what is this shit? Tom, you have to stop this. I'm going to call CPS on your ass. Jesus Christ. All right. Well, anyway, we move forward despite my cold, despite the late awakening. The late awakening. That sounds like a good name for a horror movie. Um, 
we're going to start with, uh, we got quite a bit of news to discuss in today's show. We're going to start with Cory Booker. Um, he announced he's running. We're going to laugh at him. <laughs> I mean that. We're going to laugh at him. By the way, you're, you'll see later on YouTube, my hair's all fucked up because I, cause I slept late. But what are you going to do? No biggie. Pretty sure you guys don't watch this show for my hair. Um, and we got Tulsi Gabbard announced, uh, officially announced her 2020 presidential run. And I got some clips from her, um, her speech. And it was really good. I was actually, like, very surprised by how on point it was. So I'll play some of that for you. And then we got uh, former Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz. See, that's what happens when you wake up late. You're yawning on air. I I didn't have time for caffeine. Um, Howard Schultz, um, there's a poll out now on how popular he is. And you are going to laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh all day. (laughs) It's so good. Okay, so let's get started. And we'll do that with Cory Booker. i got to pull up the Cory Booker video. I think this is the this is the first time I've seen it too, so we'll get a little bit of a you know, we'll learn about it at the same time here, but let's let's set it up. So Cory Booker has announced he's running for president in twenty twenty. Um I'm not surprised by this, you're not surprised by this, nobody's surprised by this. He's been angling for this for uh, you know, quite a long time. Um So let's take a look at his launch ad, and then we'll come back and do what we've been doing with all the candidates, which is give you a pretty solid breakdown of his record. In America, we have a common pain, but what we're lacking is a sense of common purpose. What's up? Amen. I grew up knowing that the only way we can make change is when people come together. When I was a baby, my parents tried to move us into a neighborhood with great public schools, but realtors wouldn't sell us a home because of the color of our skin. A group of white lawyers who had watched the courage of civil rights activists were inspired to help black families in their own community, including mine. And they changed the course of my entire life. Because in America, courage is contagious. My dad told me, boy, never forget where you came from or how many people had to sacrifice to get you where you are. So over 20 years ago, I moved to the central ward of Newark to fight slumlords and help families stay in their homes. I still live there today, and I'm the only senator who goes home to a low-income inner-city community, the first community that took a chance on me. We are better when we help each other. The history of our nation is defined by collective action, by interwoven destinies of slaves, abolitionists, of those born here and those who chose America as home, those who took up arms to defend our country, and those who linked arms to challenge and change it. I believe that we can build a country where no one is forgotten, no one is left behind. Parents can put food on the table where there are good-paying jobs with good benefits in every neighborhood, where our criminal justice system keeps us safe instead of shuffling more children into cages and coffins, where we see the faces of our leaders on television and feel pride, not shame. It is not a matter of can we. It's a matter of do we have the collective will, the American will. I believe we do. 
together, we will channel our common pain back into our common purpose. Together, America, we will rise. I'm Cory Booker, and I'm running for President of the United States of America. Okay, so um, let me tell you why that wasn't a great ad. <laughs> All right, maybe I'm being a little harsh. It, you know, perhaps it's better than you would have expected from Cory Booker. Perhaps you would have expected a worse ad from Cory Booker, given his history. Um, but here's why that ain't going to fly in 2020. Listen, look at the themes in that ad. Common purpose, come together. We have a common pain. Let's channel that for our common purpose. Uh, let's do this quote together. Um, we will rise. So it's all like, you know, high school uh, football sloganeering, if you will. It's all like, oh, you know, everything could be good for all of us, and we could have good-paying jobs, and we could all hold hands and sing Kumbaya, and we could all make America united again. Here's the problem with that. What the Democrats need to be running on in 2020 is class warfare. Now, some people might hear that on the right and go, oh, my God, he, did he just come out and say that? Well, here's the reality, guys. We didn't start it. <laughs> like the song goes, we didn't start the fire. The, the class war was waged from the top 1% or maybe even the top 0.01%, the ownership class, on the rest of us. And they've been waging that class war for decades. So they've been coming after us. And wages have been stagnant since the late 1970s, early 1980s. And you know the statistics because we say them all the time on the show. 76% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. Half of workers in America make $30,000 a year or less. 29 million Americans uh, don't have health insurance. 32 to 45,000 Americans die every year because they don't have access to basic health care. So in a system that's that fundamentally broken, you don't get to run on Kumbaya. You can run on Kumbaya if the system wasn't broken. And if there wasn't this, you know, runaway wealth of the top 0.01% in the elite and billionaire class, it's uh, corrupting our entire system thoroughly. If that wasn't the case, you could run on a kumbaya. Like, if you're running a kumbaya-type campaign and you're in Sweden because you already have a system that's functioning relatively well, but you're in the U.S., our system is broken as fuck. Save your kumbaya. I got no, I, I got no use for your kumbaya. What I have use for is we're going to fight back against the billionaires. That's why Elizabeth Warren's ad was good. Now, to be fair to all these guys, Nobody to this point has brought up policy substance in their ad. Nobody has. The one that came the closest was uh, Elizabeth Warren. And in hers, it, it's be the reason why it was good is because it touched on these like class warfare themes um, as she did not discuss policy. But apparently they're all making a decision to not bring up policy. But if you're not going to bring up policy, okay, well, then you have to, uh, you know, go to the class war themes and go to here are the bad guys, it's the billionaires, it's the corporations, it's the elites, it's the people who rigged the system against you. Here are the good guys, the people, and working people are going to rise up, and I'm going to be the leader of those working people. That's what you've got to run on. Now, again, Cory Booker, even though he added some slight populist themes here and there, the reality is he's running a 1990-style campaign. You just heard it. You know, common purpose, come together. If only somebody had just tried a, a, a campaign with come together as their slogan. Oh, that's right. You had Hillary, and it was stronger together. So this is... That, that's not an accident. Like, that's, that's what's going to lose. So I see where he's trying to go with it, but it's just wildly out of step with the times. Now, let's get into uh, his record. The first thing I always think of when I think of Cory Booker, it, it, honestly, it's going back to maybe 
five to even ten years ago, probably closer to ten to be honest, where he used to regularly appear on Bill Maher's show uh, on HBO, Real Time with Bill Maher. Now, the thing that always stuck out to me about him was how weaselly he was. Now, why do I say that? Because every single time Bill or anybody else on the panel made a point as if to say, holy shit, these Republicans are dead wrong on this issue, and the Democrats are, need to fight for the right thing. He would always go into his song and dance of, well, you know, hey, there's good people on both sides, and we need to come together, and we need to find the center, and we need to find the middle. And Cory Booker made a point his entire career of being like the old school Obama uniter character on steroids. He, he made a point of always being the last Democrat to say, you know what, I condemn the Republicans and what they're trying to do with issue X, Y, or Z. He always made a point of being like, I'm, I'm the above the fray guy, I'm the middle of the road guy. He took this Bill Clinton philosophy, this new Democrat philosophy, the triangulation philosophy is the actual political science term, and he said, I am never deviating from this. And he stuck to that come hell or high water for the longest time possible until it was not politically feasible anymore, and he realized he didn't have a choice but to try to pretend to be further left than he is. So he always would do the song and dance of, oh, the center is the best, and I'm in the middle, and I think everybody's got good ideas, and blah, 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 blah. Just political fucking vomit is what it was. Overly calculated garbage that's lazy because it, it assumes that the system we have in Washington, D.C., you have two equal sides pushing for what's best for the American people. Whereas instead, we have two sides where neither one of them are really pushing for what's good for the American people. So when you're finding the middle point between a corrupt and broken system, you know what that makes you? Corrupt and broken. That's what it makes you. So uh, now here's his record. Let me go. I'll go to the good stuff. There is, of course, some good stuff. All these Democrats have, uh, you know, some good stuff in their record. So um, he's good on social issues. He's good on civil rights. He's good on LGBTQ issues. He's good on criminal justice reform. Um, he supports paid family leave, which is wonderful. He says, he says, asterisk by this one, he's for Medicare for all. Um, but he also said just last year, or no, I'm sorry, two years ago, 2017, quote, um, it's okay to look at sing- single payer, but I'm not for it. That was just two years ago. Now he says he's for it. Again, probably because he sees where the political winds are going and he knows he can't go against that. So he's kind of kowtowing to that, if you will. Now here's the bad. His entire career, he's been a neoliberal. You know, I just explained, uh, the first thing I think of is his appearances on Bill Maher, and he made crystal clear that he planted his flag in that position. That's who I am. Um, Now, in 2014, he supported lower corporate taxes. Listen, when you go through the records of a lot of these um, Democrats who are running in 2020, sometimes you're surprised at just how terrible their records are. I was surprised by Kamala's record. There was a lot of stuff. I mean, her stuff as a prosecutor, oh, goodness gracious, what are you doing? For civil asset forfeiture? Excuse you? What? There's some things that are just like, holy shit, this is crazy. Cory Booker's got a lot of those holy shit things. So, supported lowering corporate taxes, simply a right-wing position. Um, There was a scandal when in uh, the Obama years, I think it was in 2012, When it was Obama versus Romney, Obama had used some attacks against Mitt Romney where he brought up uh, private equity and Bain Capital because Bain Capital harvested companies and then fucking laid off uh, working people and then uh, turned around and made a profit. 
So Obama was like, hey, that's kind of fucked up. What are you doing? <laughs> and Cory Booker went on the Sunday shows, and uh, he called Obama's attacks on private equity, quote, nauseating. Now, why is that? Because Cory Booker is one of the Democrats that takes the most amount of money from Wall Street. Cory Booker is also one of the Democrats that takes the most amount of money from Big Pharma. A lot of the pharmaceutical companies are stationed in New Jersey, probably for a tax situation. So this is who he is. Now, uh, he also said, he went out of his way to say, corporate campaign donors helped rebuild Newark. So whenever people brought up to him, hey, man, like you take a lot of uh, corporate money. What's going on here? He says, well, listen, they helped rebuild my hometown in Newark. So corporate campaign donors? I'm not against them. I mean, look, they helped. What am I going to say? Um, when you go to his record on Open Secrets, only 12% of his money, 12%, comes from small donors. 68% from large donors. That's that big money bundling that we always talk about, which is the second worst form of corruption. The number one worst form of corruption is corporate PACs. And 10% of his money comes from corporate PACs. Um, and then he famously, famously opposed Bernie's drug reimportation bill. Remember that? That was quite a debacle. And I've never seen a politician become more of a politician than his response to what happened there. So he sided with Republicans to kill Bernie Sanders' drug reimportation bill. Basically, all of Twitter in unison dunked on him and said, fuck you, you corporate sellout shill doing the bidding of Big Pharma. We see you're one of the top recipients of, uh, literally the top recipient of Big Pharma money. You know, you're canceled, you're done, we hate you, blah, blah, blah. And then he did a 180, and he was like, uh, uh, now see, the problem with Bernie's bill, bro, is that it didn't have, you know, FDA regulation of those drugs, and I can't have unregulated drugs coming in the country, bro. So me, I'm going to propose, uh, here, I'm proposing my own bill that is the same as Bernie's plus FDA regulation. Now, why was that a bullshit dodge? It was a bullshit dodge because there's no epidemic in Canada of the, the drugs making them drop dead. In fact, Canada has stricter regulatory bodies than we do. So, and it's also the same drugs, by the way. A lot of this is made by U.S. pharmaceutical companies, and they import them into Canada, and then, you know, they're cheaper in Canada. So the idea of like, oh my God, they're unregulated. The drugs are not unregulated. They're perfectly regulated. It's just you needed to find a way to weasel out of being against cheaper drugs. So you use that as the thing that you could cling to. Oh, it was, I was just because the FDA regulation issue wasn't there. And I mean, what am I going to do? I got to have safe drugs in the country. As if like, you know, people are dropping dead every day from tainted medication in, in Canada. No, their regulations are better than ours. So it was bullshit. It was a way to, to weasel out of it, wiggle out of it. So uh, everybody, nobody fell for his nonsense, um, but he did the 180 because he realized my 2020 chances are done if I don't do something about this. So that's what he did. He, he proposed his own bill with the FDA regulation part of it and act like the entire time. He's a liar, by the way, because that's not true, but he sticks to that line. Oh, no, it's just because the FDA regulation. Um, and then finally, he said all options are on the table with Iran. So that means military, including military. He also said we should, quote, hold Assad accountable and is open to military intervention in Syria. So on foreign policy, he's a mess. Oh, Israel. He's horrendous on the issue of Israel, you know. Um, and he's big on this, like, self-help guru hacky shit. Like, he'll, he tweets these really weird, like, self-help 
promotional, almost Deepak Chopra-like stuff, and it's just really cringy, and that annoys the shit out of me also. Um, and then he did, for, for this race, he did come out with some new ideas. He's trying to find a way to, like, get ahead of, um, or, or get, you know, somehow get his name above the other candidates in the field. So he came out with this idea of baby bonds. I guess every baby gets a bond, and it's a way to try to um, give them a head start so they're not stuck uh, way behind financially. I don't know the specifics of that deal. I've never seen a thorough, um, I've never seen a, a critical analysis of that idea, so I can't comment as to whether or not I like it or don't like it. It's possible it's a good idea, um, but overall, Cory Booker is heavily in the camp of corporate Democrat, in my opinion. So, you know, you have this spectrum, and on that spectrum, you have politicians who are social democratic or populist left and who mean it, you know, Bernie being the gold standard on that front, I guess you could say. Um, And then you have, you know, people that lean to different sides of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum, you have Cory Booker. He's the prime example of the corporate Democrat who will not change much and who will give us, at best, by the way, at best, he would give us the kind of change Obama gave us. But that's really being too kind to Cory Booker, because there's a lot of stuff Obama did that I don't think Cory Booker would have done. So I think it's fair to say Obama is actually to the left of Cory Booker on the political spectrum, even though he's a very st- kind of standard, um, you know, centristy type Democrat. So he's not good. <laughs> I will not be supporting Cory Booker in 2020. Um, but there you go. There's, there's Cory Booker's announcement for 2020. And I still want more corporate Democrats to jump in the race. So they split that vote more. I'm waiting for it. Keep jumping in. But we actually have a story later that's a little concerning on that front. A bunch of them are like, I don't know if I'm going to run now because they see the reaction to Howard Schultz. So this is, this is fascinating, but I need more corporate Democrats to jump in. So I welcome Cory Booker to the race, even though I will not be supporting him. All right, next. Tulsi Gabbard's uh, actual announcement. I got to play you this little clip from it. So, Tulsi Gabbard announced her 2020 run for president officially. Uh, she was in Hawaii and she gave, a, honestly, a substance packed speech. I want to play you just a, a short clip from this, maybe four minutes or so. Take a look, and then we'll discuss. We must fight for the soul of our country. Stand up against bought and paid for politicians who kowtow to special interests, selling their votes to the highest bidder. Where instead of draining the swamp, our president has turned it into a cesspool of corruption. We must stand up against big pharma and insurance companies who extort those who are sick, who put their profits above the health and well-being of our people. We have to fight to make sure that every single American gets the quality health care that they need through Medicare for All. We must stand up against the big Wall Street banks who gamble with our money and our future, 
stand up against overreaching intelligence agencies and big tech companies who take away our civil liberties, privacy, and freedoms in the name of national security and corporate greed. We must stand up against those who pollute our land, our water, and our air. We must stand up against private prisons who are profiting off the backs of those who are caught up in a broken criminal justice system, a system that puts people in prison for smoking marijuana, while allowing corporations like Purdue Pharma, who are responsible for the opioid-related deaths of thousands of people, to walk away scot-free with their coffers full. This so-called criminal justice system which favors the rich and powerful and punishes the poor cannot stand. We must join hands and stand up against those who perpetuate bigotry, hatred, and violence against our brothers and sisters because of their race, religion, or sexual orientation. We must stand up stand up against this administration that claims to believe in America first, but who sells our troops, our weapons, and our interests to whichever foreign country is the highest bidder. We must stand up against those who dishonor our troops, treating them as political pawns and mercenaries for hire in wars around the world. We must stand up stand up against powerful politicians from both parties who sit in their ivory towers thinking up new wars to wage, new places for people to die, wasting trillions of our taxpayer dollars, hundreds of thousands of lives, and undermining our economy and our security and destroying our middle class. President Trump campaigned against regime change wars when he ran for president, but now he bows to the wishes of the neocons who surround him, clamoring for regime change wars that he claimed to oppose this time in Venezuela and in Iran. These powerful politicians dishonor the sacrifices made by every one of my brothers and sisters in uniform, their families, as they are the ones who pay the price for these wars. In fact, every American pays the price for these wars that have cost us trillions of dollars since 9-11. Every dollar that we spend on regime change wars or on the new Cold War and this nuclear arms race is a dollar coming out of our pockets dollars that should be used to address the very real urgent needs of our people and our communities right here at home. God damn. I think Tulsi Gabbard realized something. Uh, I think she realized that she is not getting a single break from mainstream media. In fact, they just, was it yesterday or two days ago, there was a, a story from NBC about how 
Russia has a preferred candidate in the Democratic race, and it's Tulsi Gabbard. And then they, uh, they say that there's all these Russian bots supporting her on Twitter. Well, come to find out, and Glenn Greenwald did a fantastic breakdown of this, it's utter nonsense. They're using um, the, this group that was just actually called out by the New York Times, uh, of all people, believe it or not, of all outlets, where the New York Times said they were caught fabricating um, Russia stuff to help the Democratic Party. Well, that's exactly what's happening here. They're pretending like, what a dumb smear. Of all the things to try to smear somebody with, that's what you go to? Like, you just fucking, is it just always default to Russia and don't even try to connect dots or make it sound somewhat scary or weird? Like, really? That's the thing that we're all supposed to be, oh my God, Tulsi Gabbard, she's canceled because Russian bots were on, were, were supporting her. Well, like I just described, first of all, they weren't. <laughs> but second of all, even if they were, like as if that's like a, oh, that's it. Now everything she says about corruption and legalizing marijuana and raising taxes on Wall Street, like that, that, all that's stupid and dumb now. It's just like they're, they're not even trying with their smears. They're really, really shitty smears. This group has already been discredited and discredited by the New York Times of all people. You have these like, these, um, these groups that have shady funding from different like neocon think tanks or defense contractors and all these candidates who would come out actually against war, they just get smeared nonstop as like, oh my God, you're with the enemies. It's just, it's, it's McCarthyism all over again to try to use that as an attack. Like, oh, um, Russia likes Tulsi. It's just so stupid. But anyway, she knows that she's not going to get any support from any corner of the establishment media. So you know what she decided? This is what it looks like to me. She decided, I'm just going to go all in with running a solid campaign and reaching out to the people. I'm going to go all in with saying what the American people want to hear. And I think that'll help me. Because if you, it's not like the media is the best at controlling the narrative. I mean, they're going to hammer this home until the cows come home. They're going to make, they're going to try to force Kamala on you in 39 ways. But, you know, they tried to force Donald Trump away from us and it didn't work because their attacks were so hacky. So it's not like they're the end all be all. So what she's done is it looks like to me, she accepted it. And she's like, I'm just going to say, I'm just going to run this campaign with zero fucks to give about what the political class thinks of me. And this will make the people like me. And so this is the boldest, I mean, the speech was incredible. So she went after corruption, she went after big pharma and insurance companies. By the way, what are the chances that a politician like Cory Booker would do that? Zero. Um, She said, clearly, I'm for Medicare for all, let's end Wall Street recklessness. She said, and this is something I haven't even heard from Bernie or Elizabeth Warren, she went after the intelligence agencies and big tech, and she said, they take away our privacy for, quote, national security. That sounds like she's going after the Patriot Act, and she's like, the Patriot Act's bullshit. Um, she slammed private prisons. She spoke about um, how people are in, in prison for marijuana, and they shouldn't be. And then she went after Trump very clearly and said, he says America first. That's America first, my ass. He's selling us to the highest bidder. Um, and that could be a reference to either Israel or to Saudi Arabia. Um, and then she says she re- slams regime change wars that are... Uh, perpetrated by, quote, both parties. And she even brings up Venezuela and Iran. See, that's 
that, to you and me, that's just good. But in the context of a politician who's in Washington, D.C., that's like, oh, my God, I can't believe you just said that. Because if you'll, you'll notice that, especially when it comes to Venezuela, even Bernie and, and AOC are walking on eggshells, and they're like, I don't know, you know. And here's why, by the way. I think it's because they're, they're accused day in and day out of, like, being – being hardcore socialists, not um, social democrats, but like post-capitalist kind of socialists. And I just don't think they are. I think they're just social democrats. But the number one accusation against them is that you're, you're socialists and you're like dictator lovers and you love authoritarians. And so they don't want to be seen as giving, like actually siding with Maduro. They don't want, because then people are going to go, see, we, we always slam the Democrats as like their ideal system being Venezuela. And now we know that people like Bernie and AOC, their ideal system is Venezuela because they're defending Venezuela. They're defending uh, Maduro. So I think they're so aware of that and they're afraid of the backlash from that, that they're like not being as forthright on this issue as they should be. Because the fact of the matter is, it doesn't even matter what you think of Maduro. That doesn't matter at all. You can stand on principle against the U.S. doing illegal coups. (laughs) Like, you don't even need to bring Maduro into the conversation to say, hey, listen, on principle, I don't think we should be able to willy-nilly violate international law. And that's what AOC and Bernie should be saying. And, I mean, they've tipped their hand to say, yes, I'm against this, but they haven't really been upfront about it. Like, Bernie did this whole tweet storm where he was like, Okay, Maduro's horrible, he's the worst, he blah, 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 and oh yeah, by the way, we shouldn't do what we're doing here. Okay, um, and then AOC, I don't, she, all she did was retweet Ro Khanna's statement on it, where Ro Khanna was strong and against um, intervention in Venezuela and backing the illegal coup. Um, but here you have Tulsi Gabbard, she's, she sees an opportunity here, she says, I'm putting this front and center. Stop doing what you're doing to Venezuela, stop, you know, uh, potentially going towards regime change in Iran, as all of your uh, moves in recent years have been towards that with pulling out of the Iran deal and sanctioning them, even humanitarian goods and medicine. So I think that this tells me she's going to be a force to be reckoned with, which is why my next point is, listen, Bernie, Bernie's my number one, so stop fucking around and jump in the race. (laughs) But the rest of the, you know, the rest of the field is starting to crystallize. As of right now, it looks like you got um, the people who are who are representing the more left side of the spectrum in this race. It's going to be Bernie when he jumps in, Elizabeth Warren, and uh, Tulsi Gabbard. So we'll see. We'll see what happens moving forward. But I thought that this speech was wonderful, and it was incredibly substantive. Okay. All right, let's make fun of Howard Schultz. Schultzy. Let's make fun of Schultzy. All right, so it's time to share one of my favorite stories of all time. Climate change, or climate change, excuse me. Change Research conducted a poll from January 31st to February 1st, 
1,338 likely 2020 general election voters to assess former Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz's potential independent candidacy for president in 2020. Schultz is less known to the electorate than other declared and potential presidential candidates. 56% have never heard of him or don't have an opinion. Among those who have an opinion, just 4% view him favorably compared to 40% unfavorably. A 10 to 1 unfavorable to favorable ratio, far higher than any other candidate tested. For comparison, 52% of respondents rate President Trump unfavorably versus 42% favorably. Schultz is viewed unfavorably by Democrats, 50% unfavorable, 4% favorable. Republicans, 43% unfavorable, 4% favorable. And Independents, 31% unfavorable, 4% favorable. Oh, inject it in my veins. I love it. I love it so much. Now, he would argue, well, listen, it's only this low because people don't know me yet, but once they get to know me, that number is going to go up. Counterpoint, (laughs) it's just not going to. And it's not going to because you have no constituency except the elite. That's the main point here. You have no constituency except the elite. That's it. So um, why? Why is there this, so much hatred of this guy? Well, he's a corporate hack. That's why. His whole, like, as he's going around smugly and, and condescendingly uh, telling people, like, I'm for the American dream, and that's why I'm running, is I want to preserve the American dream because I made it through the American dream. As he's doing that, in his next breath, He's like, oh, yeah, by the way, you cannot have all of the basic things that other developed countries have, which give them equal opportunity. So this entire campaign to this point has been him railing about what he's against. And what he's against is Bernie Sanders' philosophy. What he's against is social democracy. What he's against is um, universal health care, Medicare for all, and free college. He keeps making a point. He puts that front and center. Uh, We can't do it. We can't afford it. That's not even true. Stop saying it. It's not true. We save $5 trillion over 10 years if we move to a Medicare for All system. Our system right now is the most expensive, and we can't afford the system we have now. That being the case, and with the fact that for um, college, if you just took the amount of money we added added on top of our uh, military budget, so just the increase this year in our military spending, like, a small percentage of that, not a small percentage, but I think it was a $100 billion increase in the military spending. Free college would cost 60, or $100 billion. Free college would cost $62 billion. So you could have paid for free college. You could more than pay for free college with just the increase in our military spending for this year. So what, the thing is, they never trot this out. They never say, oh, my God, we can't afford it when it's tax cuts for the rich, when it's endless uh, quantitative e- easing for uh, Wall Street and big banks, and uh, when it's corporate welfare for ExxonMobil, and they never say, oh my God, we can't afford it, we can't afford it, we can't afford it. Um, they only say it when it's for college and when it's for healthcare, when it's for things that help regular people. So that's why people hate you, Howard Schultz, because here's, he wants to be like, like, oh, I'm woke, so what does he do? He's, I don't hate gays, I don't hate blacks. Wow, fucking unbelievable, man. Did, did you come with a cape? Do you have an S on your chest? Uh, like, th- what a low bar. That's, that's obvious. That's obvious. I mean, if you're not on that page, you're a far-right Republican and you're a silly person. So 
not hating minorities is duh. That's the, that's the category I file that under. But, like, he has to make that, like, oh, this is why I'm more on the left is because I don't hate minorities. But then, oh, yeah, by the way, the Republicans are half right on economics, and I don't want uh, universal health care. I don't want uh, free college. I don't want any of the things that would actually help you. Well, then fuck right off. Who's the, who the fuck's going to vote for you? And, and it's gaslighting us, too, because his arguments aren't even true. Like, so far his points have been, oh, we can't do it because we can't afford it. But that's not true. So now, once we get past that point, if that's not true, then what do you say? Do you say, oh, I still oppose it? Or do you say, okay, I'll adjust with the evidence and the data, and I'll say, now I'm for it. No, he won't say he's for it. Because it turns out this billionaire guy has a lot more, um, he's a lot, his politics come heavily based on his class. His, his class informs his, his political views. He's not objective. He's not looking at the facts. He's not looking at the evidence. He's not actually, oh, my God, let me look and see what helps the American people. No, he's a billionaire asshole who made it because he fucking sells overpriced coffee milkshakes. And now he thinks he's a genius as a result of that. And so he wants to swoop in and save the day by being a fucking, like, middle manager type person and, and you know, um, implementing his neoliberal nightmare, his pro-capitalist centrist platform, which is just the same garbage we've had from the late 1970s and onward. So, yeah, I despise this motherfucker, and you should too. Because what does he stand for? All he stands for is I hate, or or, excuse me, I don't hate minorities. Wow. And, oh, yeah, now I'm going to smugly lecture you about how we can't be a social democracy uh, and have the basic things that every other developed country has. So, in other words, like, the status quo is kind of cool, and I would do some minor tweaks. That's what he's running on. He just, he's so, he's so ignorant to what's happening in this country. He's so ignorant to it. He doesn't know, I bet, that 76% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. He doesn't know that. He doesn't know that um, half of workers make $30,000 a year or less. He doesn't know that our infrastructure gets a grade of D+. Because he's a billionaire, and he's in his own uh, economic class and social class, and he's just totally detached from the problems of regular people, but he thinks that you're going to look at him like some sort of a savior. It's really smug and gross and fucking disgusting, which is why he has a 4% uh, approval rating. And my guess is, even if that number rises, it won't go above 10%. That's my prediction. You heard it here first. All right, let me do the Ralph Northam story, then we'll take a quick break. So Ralph Northam is the Democratic governor of Virginia, and um, he's a milquetoast centrist, so much so that um, when all the corporate Democrats were campaigning for him, Bernie did not campaign for him. Uh, I'm not sure if Bernie decided I don't want to campaign for him or if Northam told Bernie, hey, I don't want you to campaign for me. But either way, it's the same takeaway, which is he's not he's not really a leftist. Um, well, there's a little scandal that broke about him um, over the weekend. Take a look at this picture that they found in his yearbook. Wowzers. Now, the fallout from this was a disaster. So at first, he was like, oh, um, okay, sorry, my bad. I was in the picture. Because this is his page in the yearbook. 
Um, and then he said, well, listen, okay, sure, it was me. I was in that picture. But to be fair, I don't remember which one I was. So I don't know if I was the dude in the Klan hood, and I don't know if I was the dude in blackface. <laughs> then that um, evolved to him saying, you know what, uh, I'm, I'm refusing to resign. And come to think of it, yeah, you know what, matter of fact, that wasn't even me. That wasn't even me in, in the picture. So don't even worry about it. Well, then, I mean, the only other option is even if that's not you in the picture, you chose to have that in your yearbook. It, that's a picture you chose to put on your page in your yearbook. I mean, there's no, like, good options here. Then he gave a, a press conference about this, and listen to what he says. I am not surprised by its appearance in the EVMS yearbook. In the place and time where I grew up, many actions that we rightfully recognize as abhorrent today were commonplace. My belief that I did not wear that costume or attend that party stems in part from my clear memory of other mistakes I made in the same period of my life. That same year, I did participate in a dance contest in San Antonio in which I darkened my face as part of a Michael Jackson costume. I look back now and regret that I did not understand the harmful legacy of an action like that. It is because my memory of that episode is so vivid that I truly do not believe I am in the picture in my yearbook. You remember these things. So he says, oh, it wasn't me in the picture because, listen, there was this other time I did blackface where I was being Michael Jackson. And he goes on to say, and I won this uh, moonwalk contest. And then one of the reporters is later on asks him, like, can you still moonwalk now? And he, like, looks around as if he could find a place to moonwalk. It's like, oh, oh, stop talking. What are you doing? You know what I've realized? Um, just keep it real on this front. Republicans are so much better at crisis management than Democrats. Like, I, the best example of this is the Donald Trump grabbing by the pussy tape when it was released and everybody was like media was in a frenzy they were foaming at the mouth and they were like oh that's it uh, trump's obviously going to step down before the debate tonight this was right before one of the debates the debates was going to happen oh it's over it's not even close he's obviously i mean this is a given that he's done he's going to step down he's going to concede and blah 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 they were, this stuff they were really saying what does donald trump do he shows up to that debate that night with like five accusers of Bill Clinton. And he does a press conference before the debate with the accusers of Bill Clinton. And all these women are like, one of them's like, Bill Clinton raped me. The other one was like, Bill Clinton sexually assaulted me. And they go down the list. And then when they go out uh, and the first question is about the grab by the pussy tape, Trump's like, listen, it was locker room talk. It was a mistake. I'm not proud of it, but it was nothing but locker room talk. That was just talk. What, these are actions what Bill Clinton did. And everybody was like, whoa, 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 what the fuck? He just flipped his back on everybody. Now, I'm not saying, and he obviously got out of it. He ended up winning the presidency. Now, I'm not trying to say that there's anything that Ralph Northam could do to get out of this scandal. But here's what I do know. The last thing you should have done is what you're doing right now. <laughs> <It's got laughs> 
That was me. I'm sorry. Matter of fact, you know what? That wasn't even me. Okay, uh, fine. Listen, I, I, the reason why I don't think it's me is because I had done blackface before to moonwalk and pretend to be Michael Jackson. Oh! Oh! Dude, shut the fuck up. What are you doing? Shut the fuck up. Just shut the fuck up. Shut up. Shut the fuck up. It would have been better off if you said nothing. It would have been better off if people ran with this story and then you just didn't say anything. People ask you about it. You're like, fake news. Next. And it would have been better if you did that. They're so bad. This is so stupid. And by the way, everybody is now calling for this guy to resign. Fucking everybody. Everybody on the Democratic side is like, yeah, you're done. Resign. What are you doing? So who knows what he'll do, but... I've never, the reason why this story is so amazing to me is not even necessarily because he did that, but it's because he is the worst at crisis management I've ever seen in my entire life. Like, it's not even close. He's done everything dead wrong that you're not supposed to do in the wake of this story coming out. That's what he did. So he fucked this up a thousand ways. It's, it's honestly, I mean, I'm kind of enjoying it because it's hilarious to watch, even though it's like what he did was fucked up. To watch him scramble and fall all over himself and, like, fuck up endlessly, man, it is hilarious. <laughs> uh, uh, here's, a, here's a pro tip. Pro tip, never do blackface. <laughs> Not that hard. Okay. All right, let me take a break. Try to gather myself since uh, it was late to the show and all that fun stuff. Maybe I'll grab some caffeine if I have it. Um, when we come back, there's a new report out from Axios. Trump spent nearly 60% of his time not working. So we'll talk about that and much more. Stay right there.
Alright, bitch. We are back. We are back. Okay. <clears throat> Got me some coffee, y'all. Oh, yeah. This is going to be good. It's probably too hot to sip right now. Want a little sippy sip. If I burn my tongue, you guys will all laugh. Okay. I will continue to sip that throughout the show. All right. Um, Let's discuss this new report on Donald Trump. So there's a new report out from Axios. Take a look. Since the midterms, Trump has spent nearly 60% of his scheduled time in unstructured executive time. So let me translate that for you. What that means is he's not working. (laughs) Executive time is uh, when he just basically does what he wants to do. And they're saying 60% of his time was spent in executive time. So uh, they go on to explain that, like, for example, some of the things that he puts in his executive time, he sat down and did an interview with the Daily Caller. So that's a right-wing media outlet. And he loves his right-wing media outlets, man. I mean, he... If it was up to him, he'd give all of his time to the right-wing media outlets. And the other thing that he does in his executive time endlessly is watch Fox News. Loves, 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 loves Fox News. Just watches that all day, all night. Um, in fact, oftentimes he live tweets it. Like, you'll see a tweet storm from him coming at like 7.30 a.m. And it's all people have found out that, you know, it'll be whatever they were just talking about on Fox News is the thing that he ends up doing a tweet storm about. So this is, uh, this is what he does best. Basically, the super conservative uncle, grandfather, whatever, that you have at the Thanksgiving dinner table, that's Donald Trump, and he's the president of the United States. Now, I must say, though, I must say, people, don't be too, uh, you know, upset about this, people, because I saw a bunch of people who are lefties who were, like, going after him for this, um, I would rather him not be working than him be working. Is that sentence grammatically correct? I have no idea. I prefer him not working. Work. I prefer him not to work. I don't know how to speak. <laughs> um, <clears throat> because I disagree with his ideology. I disagree with his political philosophy, or lack thereof in his case, because he's all over the place. But, you know, maybe every now and then he sprinkles in something that I can agree with, like, pulling out a TPP or uh, um, ending, saying he's going to end the wars in Afghanistan and Syria, although that's more complicated because now it looks like he might privatize. And in Afghanistan, he just pulled down from 14,000 to 7,000, which means we still have 7,000 troops there. So, but every now and then he'll do like a little something. I'm like, okay, that's fine. But like 98% of the time, it's just like, I'm going to deregulate fucking this thing. I'm going to destroy the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, I'm going to destroy the EPA, I'm going to, like, everything else, everything that he's doing is just, like, horrendous. So, I mean, I prefer that he doesn't work. So, anybody who's attacking him over this, stop. You should support this. You should uh, cheerlead this. Um, He tweeted the other day, Trump did, that he was, it, it was a picture of him and Tiger Woods and Jack Nicholas, and they all played golf together. And that hurt my soul. 
for those of you who don't know, which is like none of you at this point, unless you're new to the show, uh, I love Tiger. I'm a, a giant uh, Tiger supporter. Um, I think he's probably the greatest golfer that ever lived, even though Jack Nicholas has more majors. Um, and I felt like I was in high school, and I just caught my best friend hanging out with my worst enemy. That's what it felt like when I saw Tiger with with Trump. Now, he's played golf with him before, but also just last year he played golf with Obama. So he seems like – I don't think Tiger gives a flying fuck about politics. I don't think he cares at all about politics. And um, that leads him to golf with war criminals. <laughs> That's what happens. He golfs with war, war criminals. So Trump was tweeting about that. And everybody, like a lot of the replies were like, yeah, where are you golfing? You fucking, you used to go after Obama for golfing, and now you're golfing all the time. And that's true. He's a fucking hypocrite. But at the same time, yeah, go golf. Go golf. I'd rather you be on the golf course than you making decisions involving um, any aspect of the economy or anything involving social issues or just stay away. Just stay away. Go golf. In fact, golf the rest of your time in office. Golf until you die. I don't care. Uh, the country's in better shape if you're out there. All right, now we're going to go to Beto O'Rourke. Give me more of my coffee, bitch. Give me more of my coffee, bitch. So I told you guys that Beto O'Rourke was going to fuck up his chances for 2020, and it appears like the media is already realizing this. So uh, look at... It's an article from The Hill... We're going to go through some of it here, but look at where they put the focus in this conversation. This is curious. Take a look. Beto O'Rourke has seen his stock fall in the last month. O'Rourke has vexed some observers over the past few weeks, first for live-streaming a dentist appointment, a move critics panned as oversharing, and later for documenting a meandering solo road trip in a series of deeply personal blog posts. He's also been a bystander as other big names like Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris have entered the race. The growing primary field and slow pace of preparations for a potential campaign have left some Democrats wondering if O'Rourke's indecisiveness about whether to be a candidate is hurting him. Quote, I'm hoping he regains his momentum, but he really has, in many ways, lost his message with the reality TV of teeth cleaning and his undefined road trips, Robert Zimmerman, a major Democratic donor, said. Maybe there's a strategy behind it, but it started becoming trivial. No, it was always trivial, and yes, the entire thing is a strategy. It's stupid, but he's doing it on purpose. He thought it would make people go, oh, he's just a regular guy like me. But no, it actually exposed him as a vapid, empty politician who wants to be seen as a regular guy, just like you, but he's not. And, okay, but the thing that's annoying about this article is they don't bring up a single policy fact. Now, why is that important? It's important because that was a major reason why Beto O'Rourke had his 2020 chances hurt. I mean, David Sirota released this great article in Capital and Maine, and also it was released in The Guardian, that just went through um, Beto O'Rourke's record with a fine-tooth comb. And he, 30% of the time, votes with Trump and against his party. Um, now, in an era of resistance, you can't do that. And furthermore, when you go to the specifics 
I mean, it's really devastating. I mean, Beto O'Rourke supported fast track of TPP. I mean, that's damn near unforgivable. Um, And he also supported undermining the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. What? Yeah, it turns out that his alliance, by the way, with the New Democrats, which is the centrist, moderate Democratic caucus, yeah, it turns out he's in that caucus because he agrees with them. And so he's actually a very right-wing-ish Democrat. So the policy stuff really hurt him among actual voters, okay? But, yeah, it is also true that the teeth cleaning was so fucking goofy, everybody was making fun of him. But they're making it seem like, oh, if it wasn't for the fucking teeth cleaning and if it wasn't for, you know, the road trips, well, then obviously he would still be, like, in the conversation. Well, no, because the actual voters don't like him. (laughs) The voters realized, oh, my God, this guy is not what we thought he was. And they were like, okay, not cool. And then on top of that came the teeth cleaning thing. But that's the main point is I told you guys he was going to fuck it up. And I knew that because, not just because of his voting record, but also because look at what happened with Ted Cruz, where he apologized for calling him lying Ted. Why would you apologize for that? Why would you apologize for that? The fact that you didn't have the political ability to realize that you cannot do that, I mean, that's just weakness. That shows weakness. Oh, I didn't mean it. It was too rude. It was blah, blah, blah. No, no, no. You fucked up, man. You should have stuck by that, and you should have doubled down on that, and you should have kept saying that to apologize for calling him lying. Ted, he is a liar. That's what he is. For you to apologize shows me you're not ready for the big stage. You're just not because you don't, you're weak. You're not strong. You have, Imagine Beto O'Rourke debating Donald Trump. Ugh, it would be a bloodbath. Trump would fucking pounce all over this guy. He would curb stomp him. Are you kidding me? A guy who would had to apologize to Ted Cruz for calling him a lion, Ted? Do you have any idea how Trump would eat this man alive? Ugh. He would be up there trying to, like, you know, trying to sound like me. I'm just a regular politician guy. And I, uh, you know, I think this president has not done a great job. And Trump would just fucking leave him a bloody pulp on the ground. So... Anyway, Beto O'Rourke, even the media is now realizing it, like, okay, not going to happen. And that's good. Uh, well, I, we do need more corporate Democrats in the race, so may, maybe it wouldn't be good. <laughs> I just want more corporate Democrats running to keep splitting that corporate vote. But um, you do have Kamala and Cory Booker and, and many others who look like they're going to f- fulfill that role, but... I have a story coming in a little bit. Some of the corporate Democrats are like, I don't know if I'm going to run now because they see the reaction to Howard Schultz and they're scared. So that might actually not be a good thing because we need more corporatists running to clear the path for that leftist. All right. Max Blumenthal, he did a good good job here. So Max Blumenthal from the Gray Zone went to Washington, D.C. to ask politicians if the U.S. is meddling in Venezuela. And the responses here are atrocious. Do you think the U.S. is meddling in Venezuela? I don't think so. I mean, we're, we're the superpower in the world. 
part of the Russian agenda is to undermine democracy, not just in our country, but in other countries as well. Do you think it would be uh, meddling if Russia were to declare uh, Nancy Pelosi the president of the U.S.? <laughs> I thought about that. She's not president of the United States, I'll tell you that. It's a pretty desperate situation over there, yeah. So we should be meddling. Um, you know, the problem is when you meddle, you cause uh, locals to rebel against that, so uh, it's a tough call. Maduro's troops or goons went into the ghetto and decided they were going to take over. Isn't he the president of the country? I mean, yeah. Are those are his security forces. Well, so perhaps. Do you think the U.S. is meddling in Venezuela? Are they meddling? Um, yeah, both both sides are meddling. But it's good meddling, is what you're saying. I don't we know should if meddling. it's good meddling or not. I mean, any comment on the situation? Oh goodness gracious! This, um, as far as Venezuela is concerned, I think they did have a coup down there. Yeah. So, but what I'd like to see, yes. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I got to go. It is a coup. Yeah. It, it, to me, when you have something like that happen, I think we got to do something about it. I'm so sorry. I got to go. Okay. Thanks. Would I classify it as a coup? What happened? How would you classify it? I'll tell you what. I'd, I'd rather I'd rather be interviewed from a position of, of, of fact okay. rather than innuendo or opinion, especially since I just missed the briefing, which is just a couple hours ago. Do you think the U.S. is meddling in Venezuela's political system? I think it, we're just supporting the people and supporting what they are deciding to, needs to be needs to happen. And so I think that's good for us since we are the bastion of freedom uh, to speak up and support other people around the world who are uh, crying for freedom as well. Well, I think uh, we need to protect the Mueller Commission. On the issue of meddling, do you think the U.S. is meddling in Venezuela right now in their political system? Um, uh, you know, I, 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 do you think Trump is running a coup there? Do you think John Bolton and Rubio are running a coup? No, I don't. I, you know, I, 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 you know, I don't know. I, Right. 
something to watch it's honestly embarrassing because they it looks like everybody in dc just internalizes the idea that we're above international law the u.s is above international law it simply doesn't apply to us at all so why are you uh, bothering to ask these questions and demand consistency on our part and demand um, respect for sovereign nations even if we happen to massively disagree with the way those countries are run it's almost like they were all like, they stopped dead in their tracks, and they were like, I, I don't know how to respond to this. How do I respond to this? I've never thought of it this way. When he brought up, what if Russia just declared Nancy Pelosi was president? And the person was like, huh, I never thought of it like that. Yeah, because you're a fucking dumbass. <laughs> because <clears throat> people who are arrogant and who aren't thoughtful will never try to do the intellectual exercise of flipping, like, what if we were in their position and they were in our position? They never do that. So, I mean, it really was gross to see. Um, look at some of the responses. Hey, is the U.S. meddling in Venezuela? Well, no, because, quote, we're the superpower in the world. So, in other words, you're admitting it. Like, yeah, I think we're above international law. It doesn't apply to us. We get to do what we want. So then you don't believe in international law. You don't believe in it. You don't have a principled belief in international law. You think, hey, we could willy-nilly break it. Um, another person said, quote, it's a tough call. Is it? Uh, somebody else said, we got to do something about it. That's the other thing. There's this feeling of like, well, I mean, we have to do something. So create a crisis and then turn around and say, well, we got to do something about it. Well, hold on. A lot of the problem in Venezuela, not all of it, but a lot of it is because we sanction the shit out of them. And so ordinary people are suffering, and then we turn around and we go, ah, we got to help these ordinary people. Okay, you want to do that? Lift the sanctions. That's how you do it. But no, we, we want to help them by backing an illegal coup and meddling in their country and putting a U.S.-backed puppet in place. I mean, that's what it is. That's what we want to do. Who are we kidding? Um, and then, quote, we're just supporting the people. We are the bastions of freedom. I mean, that's somebody who drank the Kool-Aid of American exceptionalism so thoroughly that they can't see straight. We're just supporting people. Actually, no, there was a poll that came out um, just the other day which found that it's over 80% of Venezuelans who say, uh, we want the U.S. to stay out of our affairs. Over 80%. Over 80%. So this whole song and dance of like, oh, us, we're just backing the people in Venezuela. No, you're not. You're not. If you're backing an illegal coup, you are not backing the people in Venezuela. You're just not doing that. So stop saying it, because the polls show, uh, show the opposite. And the idea that we're the bastions of freedom, I mean, come on, man. We back 73% of the world's dictatorships. You cannot say we support freedom if we're backing 73% of the world's dictatorships. Our top allies, Israel and Saudi Arabia, an apartheid state and a theocratic um, fucking dictatorship. <laughs> I mean, come on. It's comical. It's fucking comical, this stuff. 
And not, none of these people are looking at it objectively and are believers in international law. And it's really sad. I mean, what's the fucking point? If, if Democrats are just going to agree with Republicans on foreign policy, then what the fuck's the point? We want an opposition party. We want somebody who's going to say, no, this is wrong. And by the way, who has done that? Ro Khanna has done that. He's been a leader on this issue. Ilhan Omar, same thing. Um, has Rashida Tlaib, I'm not sure on Rashida Tlaib and uh, Tulsi Gabbard. Those are the ones who have been really upfront about it and said, no, we should stay out. We should 100% stay out. End of conversation. So they're doing a wonderful job and they deserve a lot of credit because even Bernie and AOC have been like me. I think that they, I think that they get it and that they don't want us to do what we're doing, but they haven't been very upfront about it. And I, I think there's a reason for that, by the way. I think the reason is they're, they're accused all the time of, like, their ideal system being Venezuela, and they love Maduro. And so they're accused of being, like, socialist authoritarians. And if you say, hey, hands off Venezuela, a lot of people on the right are going to go, see, that proves it. Their ideal system is Venezuela. So they want to avoid that smear at all costs. So they're kind of bending over backwards to not stick their neck out on this issue. But what I would tell them is, no, you're allowed to come out there and say, as a matter of principle, the U.S. shouldn't be allowed to violate international law. The U.S. Shouldn't, isn't above international law. So this has nothing to do with who's leading the country. It has to do with illegal coups are not something we should be in the business of. So they could say that, but they're kind of tiptoeing around it, and that's upsetting. But anyway, I thought that was great work from Max Blumenthal. He really ripped the mask off of the, the deep, deep, hypocrisy and immorality of the system and um it's time for a change man we need all of them to act like tulsi gabbard and ro Khanna and ilhan omar and the entire democratic party should be united against uh intervention illegal intervention in in foreign countries as we scream oh my god there's meddling in our country because they're twitter trolls ah! as we do that we're literally backing an illegal coup <laughs> come on man Hypocrisy isn't even a strong enough word. We need something that goes above and beyond that word. Um, so there you have it. We got a long way to go on foreign policy, and it's a damn shame. All right, here we go. Now, Donald Trump, pre-Super um, Bowl interview. You're going to like this one. So Donald Trump was questioned on foreign policy. I think this was his pre-Super Bowl interview. interview. And um, there's so much to say about everything here. So at first, you're going to see he's taking, he's actually taking the left position. But then randomly, towards the middle slash end of the interview, he flips it, and all of a sudden, he's back on the right. And it's just, I mean, this, this interview encapsulates Donald Trump so well because he's just a massive walking contradiction. He says everything at once. He's just kind of like a babbling, incoherent mess. But take a look, and then we'll discuss. Republican vote is vast majority of them said that they don't support what you're doing, that what you're doing risks national intelligence by a precipitous withdrawal from Syria and Afghanistan. Doesn't that concern you? I ran against 17 Republicans this was a big part of what I was saying 
and I won very easily. I think the people out in the world, I think people in our country agree. We've been fighting for 19 years. Somebody said you're precipitously mm -hmm. bringing to... Precipitously. We've been there for 19 years. I want to fight. I want to win. And we want to bring our great troops back home. I've seen the people. I go to Walter Reed Hospital. I see what happens to people. I see with no legs and no arm, arms. And I've seen also what happens to them up here mm -hmm. because they're in this situation and they come back and they're totally different people where the wives and the fathers and the mothers say... What has happened to my son? What has happened in some cases to my daughter? It's a terrible thing. We've been there close to 19 years, and it's time. Now, we'll see what happens with the Taliban. They want peace. They're tired. Everybody's tired. We'd like to have, I don't like endless wars. Mm -hmm. This war, what we're doing is got to stop at some but point. But you also campaigned saying that, you know, President Obama made a big mistake by telegraphing his military moves. You're I'm telegraphing your retreat. Anything. No, no, no. There's a difference. When President Obama pulled out of Iraq, in theory, we had Iraq. In other words, we had Iraq. We never had Syria because President Obama never wanted to violate the red line in the sand. So we never had Syria. I was the one that actually violated the red line when I hit Syria with 59 Tomahawk missiles, if you remember. Mm -hmm. But President Obama chose not to do that. When he chose not to do that, he showed tremendous weakness. But we didn't have Syria, whereas we had Iraq. So when he did what he did in Iraq, which was a mistake, being in Iraq was a mistake. Okay, being in Iraq, it was a big mistake to go. One of the greatest mistakes going into the Middle East that our country has ever made. One of the greatest mistakes that we've ever made. But you want but to keep Iraq there now. Well, we, we spent a fortune mm -hmm. on building this incredible base. We might as well keep it. And one of the reasons I want to keep it is because I want to be looking a little bit at Iran, because Iran is a real problem. Well, that's new. You're keeping troops in Iraq because you want to be able to strike in Iran? No, because I want to be able to watch Iran. All I want to do is be able to watch. We have an unbelievable and expensive military base built in Iraq. It's perfectly situated for looking at all over different parts of the troubled Middle East. Okay, so let's go through this. At first, he's asked, hey, you know, you're drawing down in um, Syria and Afghanistan, and your party is against you on that. So why would you do that? Your own intelligence agencies are saying, no, don't pull out of Syria and Afghanistan. And they're saying it threatens national security. Utter nonsense. And he starts defending uh, the anti-war position. He's like, listen, I don't like endless wars. Everybody's tired. We've been there forever. Um, what's the point? And everything he's saying on that, those issues make sense now. The devil's in the details. And guess what? We're not actually getting out of those places. So Trump had announced, oh, we're getting out of Syria. Well, then a few days later, he came out and said, oh, I didn't say fast. And John Bolton said, we're going to keep a bunch of troops there. So it was, we're going to pull out of Syria. Then it was, no, not really. Pump your brakes. We're not pulling out of Syria. We're going to leave some troops there. And then the case of Af in uh, Afghanistan, we had 14,000 troops there. And now he's withdrawing the number, uh, lowering the number to 7,000. So that's not a withdrawal. To, to make it seem like, oh, my God, we're ending the war, we're not ending the war. You can't have 7,000 troops in a foreign country and say, this is the end of the war. No, it's not. That's not the end of it. You're still there. And there's still thousands of troops there. So as he's arguing for the anti-war position on Syria and Afghanistan, his actions are saying, we're going to stay there. And furthermore, there's been countless articles now uh, in regards to Syria and Afghanistan that he's considering um, – 
Blackwater staying there. So private mercenary army with a Christian fundamentalist leading it, still being in Syria and Afghanistan. So even though he's arguing for the left position, he's not actually implementing it. Now, I'll leave it up to you to figure out why that is. Is it just because, you know, he's surrounded by the neocons and the neocons are telling him, oh, yeah, sure, we're going to get out, and then they're keeping them there? Or is it because he's also in on that and he knows that it's better for his reelection to say we're going to get out, but then he's going to keep us there and pretend like we're getting out? I don't know. I don't know if he's in on it or if he's not in on it or whatever the case is, but we are staying in Syria and Afghanistan, even though he's arguing to get out of there. Now, furthermore, he flips towards the middle slash end of that interview. Because then when we bring up Iraq, all of a sudden he's like, um, well, I mean, we got to stay there. What? Well, we got to stay there and look at Iran. What? The only reason Iran is even an issue is because you pulled out of the Iran deal. Do you not get that? That that deal was in place and the whole point of it was Iran's not going to get a nuclear weapon and we're going to verify that by using the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency. They're going to regulate Iran. They're going to go in there. They're going to do regular checks. And according to the IAEA, Iran, every single time they did the inspections, Iran was 100% in compliance with the deal. We pulled out of it anyway. We pulled out of the deal anyway, even though they were in compliance with it, and we pretended like they were violating it. No, we violated it. In fact, we violated it when we passed sanctions on them in the Senate. So we violated it. We blame them even though we violated it. They're still abiding by it to this day because they're trying to salvage it with Europe. Europe, because it just wasn't the U.S. and Iran in the deal. Europe was involved. Other countries in the world were involved. So you know who's being hawkish on Iran? You. You are. John Bolton is. And then, by the way, as like he was given the anti-war arguments for Syria and Afghanistan, what are you, what are you doing right now in Venezuela? You're backing an illegal coup. You're saying the military option is still on the table. You're having John Bolton in control of that. The neocon's neocon. The biggest warmongering, warhawk, bloodthirsty maniac in the fucking country is in charge of what's happening with Venezuela. So Donald Trump is a fucking mess. Like, he doesn't have a philosophy. He's incoherent. He's surrounded by the biggest warhawks in the country. And even when he bothers to pay lip service to anti-war positions... He's not even being anti-war in terms of the policy he's implemented. Even in regards to Syria and Afghanistan, where he says we're going to get out, we're not getting out. So it's just fucking frustrating. And, you know, you have Iran, they're pushing towards war. Venezuela, they're pushing towards war. Like, what are you doing, man? This has to stop. This has to stop. And the media is such a mess. Like, she thinks she was being adversarial there in that line of questioning. But everything she said in regards to Syria and Afghanistan, it was adversarial from a right-wing position. It was, oh my God, your rhetoric is anti-war on Syria and Afghanistan. Our, our intelligence agencies say we shouldn't get out of those countries. Why the fuck are you taking them at their word like it's gospel? Our intelligence agencies got us into an illegal offensive war in Iraq and lied us into it. So stop taking their word like, oh, the intelligence agencies, oh. No, you're supposed to question them too because they're in positions of power. But they don't do that. It's just, oh, Intelligence agencies say we should stay in war forever. Why don't you agree with them? First of all, he does agree with them. Second of all, why are you being adversarial from the right? Be adversarial from the left, which is where the American people are, because they don't want us in these endless wars. Jesus Christ. So anyway, that was frustrating to see that back and forth for all the reasons I stated. And let's just get out of all these wars. It's driving me crazy. Okay. 
Now we're going to go to Sherrod Brown. And he fucked up real bad. He fucked up real bad. So Sherrod Brown is a Democratic senator from Ohio, and I actually really like him. He's proposed a bunch of populist anti-outsourcing bills, and he's generally been great for the working class. Um, And when I say the working class, by the way, I don't mean it in the same way the corporate media means it, because they use working class and white working class interchangeably. Like when I say working class, I mean of every race and background um, I hate the way corporate media uses it because it's like, it's really gross and it implies that like people of color can't be working class. And it's just not true. So when I say that, I mean, Sherrod Brown has been great for the rainbow coalition, if you will, of working class people. Um, so I, I like a lot of his record. He ran kind of an unapologetically left campaign and he crushed in his race. Compare that to Senator Joe Donnelly, Democratic senator of the state over in Indiana. He ran a very right-wing campaign and lost. So it shows you that left politics actually works. Um, Well, now he's thinking of running for office in 2020. And in one statement, I'm not kidding here, one statement, he tanked his chances. Take a look. Look, the polls show that your state is in favor of it. 
What are you doing? Vote for this or else. You need somebody who's going to twist arms like FDR did back in the day and like LBJ did on some issues when he wanted something accomplished. Twist arms, bitch. He's like, oh, it's not practical. And No, you're going to – nothing is practical. But you have to get it done. That's what being a good politician is about. It's about getting your will implemented, the will of the people implemented, by any means necessary. So it, it's – now here's why this is basically unforgivable. And this is unacceptable. Sherrod Brown's problem is he's a victim of the narrow worldview of Washington, D.C. So in other words, what that means is he's in Washington, D.C. He knows what all the chatter is like in Washington, D.C. with the fellow politicians around him. And they are just have nothing but utter contempt for the idea of Medicare for all. Because they think Medicare for all, oh, my God, that's totally reworking our health care system. We can't totally rework our health care system. We have all these... Uh, competing special interests, we have to balance, we have lobbyists, we have big pharma, we have the for-profit health insurance companies. You know, the system is so entrenched as it is that what are we going to do? We're going to fucking overturn the apple cart and start from scratch? I mean, that's crazy. How can we do such a thing? And this is the, the, the conventional bubble wisdom in Washington, D.C., like how Bernie with his pie in the sky, far leftism, things that will never happen, unicorn, fairy dust nonsense. And this is what everybody in Washington, D.C. believes. Now, Sherrod Brown has, is a senator, so he's in Washington, D.C. He's, he's aware of what everybody around him is saying, and he's internalized that dialogue. And so Sherrod Brown still, his instincts are leftist. He wants to be a leftist, so he's like, okay, well, let's split the difference. And I'll say, listen, the left-wing idea that I think is viable is let's just lower the Medicare age to 55. That makes sense, right? So in his mind, he thinks like, oh, look at me. I'm being a fucking populist left-wing hero, and I'm saying we'll do Medicare at 55. And he views that as this is practical. This is something that can work. This is something where everybody in Washington, D.C. won't scoff at you if you propose it. But here's the problem, Sherrod. You're biased by the narrow worldview of Washington, D.C. Do you even know that every other developed country has one version or another of a single-payer system? Do you know that? Are you aware of that? Are you aware that we pay like double what other developed countries pay and we still have 29 million people who are uninsured? Are you aware that 32 to 45,000 Americans die every year because they don't have access to health care? Are you aware of these things? You're probably not aware of these things. Because the reality is you have to break out of that Washington, D.C. bubble and look at these issues objectively. And when you look at them objectively, you find out very quickly 70% of the American people are for Medicare for all, which should be the end of the conversation alone because we live in what's supposed to be a constitutional Republican representative democracy. But beyond that, if every other developed country has one version or another of it, and we're ranked dead last consistently among all these countries, the Commonwealth Fund study from not that long ago, we're 11 out of 11. We're 11th out of 11 when it comes to healthcare systems in the developed world. So you have to break out of that Washington, D.C. bubble, look at this objectively, and then fight. That's what people want in a president. That's what people want in a leader. Not somebody who says, oh, that's not possible. <laughs> it's not possible to have every other developed country do it. What happened? The United States is supposed to be, oh, my God, we're the shining city on a hill. We can do anything. Unless it's something that every other developed country has done and done successfully, then we can't do it. Not going to work, dude. Not going to happen. So I like Sherrod Brown because a lot of the stuff he's done has been genuinely good for the working class, populist, left-wing proposals. But he really destroyed his chances in this one statement. He did. Because guess what? Medicare for all is a litmus test. And it should be. It should be. You have standards. You have policies you want implemented. Here you have a guy who's telling you up front, I'm not going to fight for that. I don't think that's possible, so I'm not going to fight for it. 
well, they ain't going to start the negotiation for Medicare 55, and your end position is going to be what? I don't know. We'll slightly improve the Affordable Care Act. <laughs> More status quo bullshit. You got to be smarter than this, Sherrod. You got to look at the entire, the entire world, see what they're doing with their health care systems, look at the polling data, see what the American people want. We're done with your shitty, you know, fucking split the baby, middle ground nonsense in Washington, D.C. That's the problem. You're in that culture for too long, and you don't understand the seething anger the rest of the country has for the right policies. So get your head out of your ass. All right, next story. There's a fascinating development for the 2020 election that I have to share with you. Axios is reporting that Biden, Bloomberg, and Terry McAuliffe are rattled by the liberal lurch. Rethinking runs. Internal polling shows shows socialism surging in Iowa. So they explain Michael Bloomberg, former Virginia Governor Terry McAuliffe, and they were virtual locks to run for office, but they're now having, having serious second thoughts after watching Democrats embrace Medicare for all, uh, raising taxes on the rich, Green New Deal. Now, they say Joe Biden still wants to run, but he's being advised to delay plans to see how the move to the left of the party plays out. And if Biden runs, then apparently Bloomberg and McAuliffe are not going to run. They're going to bow out. That's what the sources are telling Axios. Um, and then... They go on to explain how socialism has a net positive ranking in Iowa, of all places, and capitalism has a net negative ranking. This is among the Democratic base in Iowa. So, okay, there's a lot to digest here. I mean, first and foremost, the fact that Joe Biden, Terry McAuliffe, and Michael Bloomberg are kind of coordinating, that scares me a little bit. And that scares me because I've been telling you guys from the beginning, we have to, we need a lot of corporatists in the race. Because the more corporatists there are, the more they split the vote, the more you clear the path for the lefty. It seems like the corporatists now realize that. And they're saying, okay, well, you can't have McAuliffe run, Bloomberg run, and Biden run. We have to, they're, they're colluding, if you will, and they're saying, okay, well, Biden, if you run, we'll drop out because you're going to more or less represent the ideology we want to represent. So we all can't run, so you'll run. And you'll be able to win if we don't split your vote. That's basically what they're saying behind closed doors. But they're aware of the move left of the party. I love how they needed, like, it took them to this point to realize this. To now, right now. You and I have been well aware since fucking 2015. I was telling you guys, like, shit. We're ready for a populist, anti-corruption, anti-establishment, so-called far-left candidate. That's why Bernie Sanders, nobody knew who the fuck he was, and he ended up winning 47% of the vote in the Democratic primary and won 22 states. Like, are you kidding me? guy came out of nowhere, and he's a 1,000 years old, and he has anti-charisma, and he almost toppled Hillary Clinton with everything being rigged against him. So we knew it. it they still didn't realize it until right now. <laughs> They're like, huh, it looks like people are embracing left-wing ideas. Wow. Yeah, no shit. Every, every poll for the past couple decades has been like uh, minimum wage, uh, you know, 80%. Increasing minimum wage, 80% favorability rating. Getting out of the wars, uh, you know, only 17% wanted to stay in Afghanistan back in 2013. 
uh, legalizing marijuana, 62% want to legalize marijuana. The list goes on and on. Of all these left-wing policies, everybody's like, oh, that's what I'm in favor of. And they're just now like, wowzers, look at that. <laughs> and a lot of this, by the way, they explain how the launch of Howard Schultz has been the thing that opened their eyes to. Because nobody likes Howard Schultz. He literally has a 4% approval rating. <laughs> and they're going, oh shit, I kind of like Howard Schultz. So what the fuck? And that, doesn't that tell you so much? Because what's Howard Schultz's whole thing? I don't hate minorities. But also, by the way, you're not getting free college. You're not getting universal health care. You're not getting any of the basic things that every other developed country has. And oh my God, that's too expensive. But here's endless money for endless war. Here's, uh, you know, corporate welfare checks out the wazoo. So that's an ideology that Joe Biden, among others, were like, oh, he seems totally reasonable to me. Fuck free college and universal health care. Am I right? People are going to love this message. What? <laughs> they thought he was reasonable. And so they're seeing the backlash to him and they're like, oh, shit, maybe I can't win. Damn right, bitch. Maybe you can. But I still want all of you to run to split that vote, baby. Split it, split it, split it. Split it all day long. But it looks like they're, they're coordinating here, and that could be a problem. Because then if one of them runs, then that person is more of a force than if all of them ran because there's no vote splitting, but I think they'll still be toppled. What I said is, I know Joe Biden definitely wants to run. If he does run, wait for the 180. Because to this point, he's made crystal clear, hey, if I run, my strategy is going to be I'm the centrist. He's made it crystal clear. He's been out there praising Republicans in recent days. So... Keep an eye on that because he'll, he'll realize at some point, oh, I can't win like this. And at that point, what are you going to do? Are you going to still embrace ideas that make you fucking unlikable? Or are you going to pretend like, who, me? Me, bro? I'm to the left of Bernie, bro. What do you mean, bro? What do you mean, bro? I'm far left, bro. We'll see. We'll see what happens. But um, the corporatists are starting to realize, hey, maybe we're deeply unlikable. Okay, now we're going to go to Fox Business Network, who made total asses of themselves, or as we call it in the business, Tuesday. <laughs> Every day of the week, they just make asses of themselves. So Fox News is going to melt down here over Democrats' proposal to raise taxes on the wealthy. This is great. The wealthy for a moment. The Senator Bernie Sanders introduced a bill that would drastically increase increase estate taxes for individuals with estates worth over $3.5 million. This coming as 2020 hopeful Senator Elizabeth Warren and New York Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez have proposed major tax increases on the wealthy. Dagan, does any of this have any shot of, of taking place, of actually materializing these, these pie-in-the-sky proposals? So the, let's break them down quickly. AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, highest tax rate on income taxes. She wants at 7, 78% for income over $10 million. That has 
that's based in at least reality. Reality that's ugly it goes back to literally the 1960s. The now the rate is 37 percent. She went to 70 percent. And it was not north of 90 before. That's on um, income over 10 million. Right, but that's, that was that's before right. John F. Kennedy and then LBJ actually lowered taxes. Those those big Democrats. But what Bernie Sanders is doing by tweaking the estate tax is in some way what Elizabeth Warren is trying to do, and that is confiscating wealth. At least Bernie Sanders is operating off the existing tax system in this country. Elizabeth Warren is literally do, trying to promote something that is communist. Yeah. That, it's confiscation. That, that would be unconstitutional, that would never fly. So what does it hurt her to throw out this crazy idea about taking, basically confiscating money from Americans who earned it? Uh, it, it doesn't hurt her because she can throw it out and she knows it'll never go anywhere. <laughs> Okay, I love watching the business networks. I love it, whether it's CNBC or it's Fox Business Network or it's Bloomberg, because they are oftentimes too honest because they know who their audience is. Their audience is the 1%. That's who watches those networks. It's the 1%. It's not a fucking coal miner from West Virginia. It's not a factory worker in Kentucky. It's not, you know, somebody working a service sector job in California it is 100% the top 1% or even 0.1% who watches these networks. So they're preaching to their audience here, and the audience hates these ideas. But they go way too far in their criticisms because they know that this is the kind of stuff they want to hear, even though it's not true. So they just said Elizabeth Warren was proposing a communist idea with her wealth tax. You want to know the specifics of this wealth tax? You're going to laugh your ass off. We spoke about it on a recent show, but here, I'll tell you. It's a 2% tax, 2%, on fortunes worth more than $50 million, and a 3% tax on fortunes worth more than $1 billion. Not million, billion. 2% on wealth more than $50 million. 3% on fortunes worth more than $1 billion. You're going to call that communist? I have no words for you. I have no words for you. That's like actual communists are laughing their ass off at this like super mild social democratic idea. So let's just add, we should just ask these people, what's your ideal system? What's it like? Because, listen, to me, it looks like they support either some version of anarcho-capitalism, having, like, no taxes on the wealthy, or they're in favor of a system of rank corporatism, which is socialism for the rich. So, in other words, instead of taxing the rich and using that money for important things like education and infrastructure and healthcare and stuff like that, they want to just give massive subsidies to the rich. So, in other words, take tax money from working-class people and ship it to the top 1% for any of a various number of bullshit reasons, like, oh, they need to do research and development, or they need to hire more people, so just give them endless money. So that's what, like, this is the underlying assumption here. This is what their philosophy appears to be with their insane attacks on very mild social democratic ideas. They're utterly unaware of this, like, new gilded age that we live in, or they don't care. You know, richest six people in the world have more wealth than the bottom 50% of the world, like 3.5 billion people. Six people, more than 3.5 billion people. 
You have one family in the U.S., the Walton family. They have more than like 50% of the country. How is that even possible? Jeff Bezos, one dude, has like $130 billion. And now that dude's got a partnership with the fucking Pentagon, and he owns the Washington Post, and he's like, he controls everything. And the thing that they're mad about is not, oh my God, Jeff Bezos and these billionaires have way too much power, and it's corrupting our entire democracy, and it's, the system is so rigged against regular people. What they're mad about is a 2% tax on wealth over $50 million and a 3% tax on wealth over $1 billion, and apparently that's fucking communist. You have to understand something. You guys are the dumbasses. I know you look at the left like, mm, stupid fucking, fucking peasants. That's what you are. You're the dumbasses. Oh, this pie-in-the-sky idea. Are you kidding me? The ideas proposed by the likes of AOC, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and the rest of the people on the left, they are actually right in line with the rest of the developed world, with Scandinavia, with Europe, and, and with Canada and Australia. A lot of these ideas have a history in all these places, and like they even alluded to, in the U.S., the top marginal rate of 70%. That has a history here. Top marginal rate of over 90% has a history here. And that was during what was called the golden age of economic expansion in the U.S., so it obviously didn't have a detrimental effect on the economy because our economy was booming. So, uh, it, go ahead. Keep preaching to your choir of elite CEOs, um, and that's how you know they'll never be off the air because they will... <laughs> They will get those subsidies if need be. Even if nobody's watching them, the elite would pay them to stay on the air because this is just, they want sweet little nothings whispered in their ear, the top 1%. And that's the whole point of CNBC, Fox Business Network, and Bloomberg. All right, let me take a quick break. And then when we come back, I got a few stories to finish up here for you, including a rejected Super Bowl ad, and um, Democrats can't help but take the bait when it comes to Trump's foreign policy. Stay right there. We'll be right back with all that and more.
All right, y'all, we back. All right, rejected Super Bowl ad. So I want to play for you one of the rejected Super Bowl ads. CBS uh, refused to air this. It's a medical marijuana ad. Take a look. Austin would have dozens to hundreds of seizures every single day. None of the prescriptions would work. One pill almost killed our son. I've had three back surgeries, and I was on opioids for 15 years. It was a very dark, very depressive time in my life. After my injury, I felt like I couldn't live with the pain, but I couldn't live with this treatment long term. It was unbearable. I don't have to live like that anymore. Medical cannabis saved Austin's life. Cannabis has given me my life back. There are families in other states having to watch their children die. I want to see my brothers and sisters who sacrificed so much for this country have access to the safest treatment possible. This really is an injustice. It's not just unfair, it's cruel. All right, first of all, that was a superb ad. Um, That was really powerful. And second of all, we're so fucked up, man. Like, our system is so fucked up. It's almost incomprehensible and inconceivable that we still have a system where many states don't even have legal medical marijuana. And um, what is it? Most states don't have legal recreational marijuana. And it's still fully illegal at the federal level. So just so everybody knows, I want them to understand the details of how this system functions. If the federal government decided tomorrow no more legal recreational marijuana in, uh, you know, whatever, uh, Washington or California, they could just send the federal, send federal agents and just shut everything down immediately because federal law overrides state law. So the only reason even the state recreational marijuana systems are up and running is by the good graces of the federal government who have decided in many instances, we'll just look the other way and let the states do what they want. But if they wanted to, they could shut it down tomorrow and nobody would have any legal recourse. The courts would have to side with the federal government because that's the way our system works. That's the supremacy clause of the Constitution. So listen, man, we have a messed up system because some states don't allow recreational weed. Some states don't even allow medical weed. And um, it's like we're all living in this weird limbo, contradictory middle ground, and we're pretending like we're not. And it's infuriating because how many people are getting hurt by this system? Well, you just saw an ad there. How many people are out there in situations like that who haven't even maybe tried CBD oil or, or medical marijuana and they've tried everything else, and they feel like there's no hope, but that there is something that would help them, but they're unaware of it because their doctors aren't even allowed to say, oh, hey, you should try this. So it's just fucked up, and I can't believe, well, I can believe that they rejected that ad, but they shouldn't have rejected that ad. What's the government going to do, crack down on CBS for running the ad? They're not going to do that. Listen, we all know where this is headed. 62% of the country wants legal recreational marijuana. The only reason we're not already at that point is because of entrenched special interests because we have, you know, for example, alcohol companies are lobbying against legal marijuana because they view it as competition. You have, uh, you know, people in the DEA 
who are, legal, uh, who are lobbying against legal marijuana because they think their jobs depend on this substance continuing to be illegal. So it's only because of entrenched, entrenched special interests that we're still there. And the president of the United States tomorrow could decide we're going to take marijuana off, off this, as a Schedule I substance. Could decide just like that. It's no longer a Schedule I substance. But Obama didn't do it. Trump hasn't done it. Even though both of them have pardoned some nonviolent drug offenders who were in there for um, minor drug convictions. So it's like they both know on some level what the right thing to do is, but they're not doing it. They're not doing the main thing, which is taking it off of Schedule 1. So the time's done to fuck around in this middle ground. Let's get to the right position, which is legal recreational marijuana for the entire country, and that also has the added benefit of people using it for medicine and not needing to jump through a thousand hoops in order to get there. And don't take my word for it. Take it from people who desperately need this stuff, because I don't even smoke weed. I don't even, it's not, it doesn't jive with me. I get like weirdly paranoid when I smoke it. But a lot of people, that's not the case. I'm not a dumbass. I understand not everybody's, um, you know, disposition and outlook and, and their experience is the same as mine. So a lot of people smoke marijuana and it just helps relax them and helps them get rid of pain or whatever. So yeah, let them, let them do what they're going to do. And uh, legalize tax and regulate it, make sure it's safe. And let's have a system that makes sense. And by the way, you also have 300,000 jobs that would be created if we legalize it at the federal level. And you also have a whole new industry created overnight. So it's massively good for the economy. And uh, we would be the ones seeing the benefits of that, and not just Canada, because they recently legalized it. And we're dragging our feet on an issue that's a no-brainer. And unfortunately, that seems like a trend in this country today. Okay, take a little sip of seltzer and we'll do our last story. Hashtag big seltzer sellout, bitch. <clears throat> I got a Mondo seltzer today. Giant fucking bottle of it. Should last me all day. <clears throat> Alright, here we go. Democrats can't help but take the bait when it comes to Trump's foreign policy. So take a look at this. This is Senator Chris Murphy. Well, first, let me read the tweet below it. So Josh Rogan says, more Trump Syrian nonsense. And this is what Trump said. And if you look at Syria, what's happened? I went to Iraq recently. If you look at Syria, what's happened in Syria in the last few weeks, you would see that things are going down that were not going down. Things are happening that are very good. That's normal Trump incoherence. We're used to it at this point, but it's really dumb and obnoxious and annoying. Well, Chris Murphy responds, Senator Chris Murphy says this, word vomit like this is a reminder that one, Democrats need to run on national security in 2020, two, Democrats should nominate a presidential candidate that can and will go on the offensive on security. Uh, I'm so annoyed by this, man. You think I want to do these segments? You think I want to come out here and like, lecture Democratic senators about what the right thing to do is. I don't want to do that. I would be happy if I never had to do a segment lecturing a Democratic senator again for the rest of my life. But I do. But I do, because they always take the bait. So what I warned you about with Trump from day one is that Democrats are going to resist him in all the wrong ways. And what that means is they're going to resist him from the right. So when Trump happens to do something which is one of his fucking 
one out of a hundred things that might be decent, or at least his rhetoric on one out of a hundred things are decent, the Democrats are going to pick that issue and go, oh, this is the one that we're going to attack him on, and we're going to take the right-wing position. And that's exactly what he's doing here. Oh, Trump is saying he wants to get out of Syria and Afghanistan. By the way, he's not even actually doing that. But he's saying he wants to get out. Well, allow me to be the serious person in the room and say, Mr. President, we should stay in Syria and Afghanistan, and we should stay in all these foreign wars and go on the offense. Dude, that's not a popular position. On top of you advocating for illegal offensive wars against countries that didn't attack us. That is politically stupid, on top of being dumb from a policy perspective. How do you not know this? What did Trump do recently with John Bolton at the helm of all people? He's uh, orchestrating an illegal coup in Venezuela. The Democrats really wanted to resist. I sure found an issue for you to resist. Hey, the U.S. is not above international law. Can you please stop willy-nilly toppling foreign governments for our oil companies? Which is exactly what this is about, by the way, because Venezuela has the world's biggest oil reserves. That's what this is about. Let's get a U.S. puppet in there so that we could um, jack some of that oil. So instead of taking that perspective, the Democrats, on an issue where they could actually resist, they're like, I got nothing to say, dog. Go ahead. Do you, John Bolton. You're embarrassingly bad, man. Holy shit. Like, at least... At least be smart enough to know what the right thing to do politically is. But they're not. But they're not. Even if they were just going to pay lip service to the right ideas, but then turn around and and be hypocrites and assholes and do the opposite. No, but even politically, he's like, isn't it great? We should, Democrats should run on endless wars and doing offensive, aggressive actions around the world. We have an empire right now, and it's massively unpopular. Only 17% of Americans still want to be in Afghanistan. What are we doing? What are you doing? We've been in Afghanistan for what? We went there in 2001, so that's 18 years we've been in Afghanistan. Um, 2003 was Iraq, so that's what, 16 years we've been in, in Iraq. And you, you guys are not screaming from the rooftops about how we need to get out, and we need to get out now, and we've wasted trillions of dollars, and we've got to rebuild our own country. You're literally acting like the best move politically that the Democrats should do is the worst move. Like, it would be the best if you ran on offensive wars, but, and this will help us. No, that would, you'd be worse off if you did that. What a broken fucking system we have. This is the opposition party. The opposition party is trying to outright wing the insanely right wing party. I feel like we live in an episode of the Twilight Zone. At least, like, when I was coming of age to uh, and and seeing what was happening with politics at least it was at a time when the democrats were very very critical of george w bush with what he did in iraq and they like very quickly the democrats were like oh shit oh what have we done this war was based on a lie it was offensive we're wasting all this money our soldiers are dying civilians are dying And the Democratic rhetoric on the Iraq war was, like, insanely strong against it. And so I was like, oh, this is great. At least we have a party that's fighting for the right stuff. Well, fast forward to today, and they've totally lost the plot. And now it's all like, what does Trump say? Oh, Trump says he might want to get out of Syria and Afghanistan. Well, now I'm going to argue we should stay in. What are you doing? A lot of it is like, just like there was Obama derangement syndrome, how they would just, no matter what Obama did, they're like, I disagree. Even when Obama did their ideas, like Obamacare, which is an individual mandate reform, which is originally their idea from the Heritage Foundation. They're like, I'm against it because he's for it. Now with Trump, even if he does the rhetoric against war, they're like, oh, well, I love war now. 
Can you fucking stand for something serious? Can you stand for something that would actually improve this world as opposed to making it worse, you fucking buffoon? All right. That'll do it for today's show, y'all. Love you. We'll talk to you soon. Everybody enjoy the rest of your day. I'm out. Peace.